Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved. You're inspired, and you're inerrant, you're infallible, and you're all-sufficient Bibles with me to the well-worn gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us as we lift our voices in worship to the one who is worthy to receive it. As we begin to press into the summer season, I know we have many out, half the congregation out for the memorial holiday today. We have so many in our congregation who have served in the military, and we know some who have even, we have loved in our family lines who have paid the ultimate price for the duty that they were called to. We are grateful. We opened our doors today free from persecution and free to proclaim the gospel by God's grace because tyranny was stopped at our shores or was beaten back when it sought to make conquest of our nation. Scripture reminds us that those who serve are an instrument of God, punishing evil and defending the innocent. If peace be their ultimate goal, even when wielded by a less-than-perfect government, they are an arrow in the quiver of God's sovereignty. And we are grateful. Those who have served the United States, even in her failing and depravity, who have served to protect and even die for this nation, have been uniquely used by God in ways never seen in history. The experiment of these United States has yielded a fertile soil, allowing the gospel to thrive like nowhere else in history, being a safe place and an ascending entity for the greatest message ever heralded. heralded. God chose to flourish the gospel amongst a free people that it might go in the Great Commission. Now, the entire notion of freedom is all over Scripture. I did a cursory glance over 108 times being free. The concept of freedom is talked about in God's Word. So, beloved, if the glory of God is our highest good, if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, what a joy to do that in freedom. But that cannot happen without tyranny being fought from without and from within. Freedom is not the natural state of a fallen world where sin continually brings bondage. It must be contended for each and every generation. So for those who have stood in the gap and have even died, we are grateful. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we took an incredible look at something well, you probably don't hear often about. We examined the incredible role of Islam in Christian eschatology, in end times. Well, with most Christians assuming that the world's biggest and largest false religion would have nothing whatsoever to do with God's ultimate plans of justice and future judgment, it was amazing what we saw. Having looked at verses 14 through 18 last week, we were left to explain what force would cause the Jews, hearing of the abomination of desolation, needing to run with such intensity. Running so quickly, Jesus said, don't even grab your coat. Pray that you're not pregnant because you need to run. Pray that the weather not hinder you because you need to run. 
with the abominations of desolation having occurred at the, the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, when the Antichrist sits in the temple of God atop the temple mount and he declares, declares that he is God, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. We read that today. We saw last week that a decree of death will go forth. Any who will not worship this abomination will be killed. And yet to know and to understand the mechanisms by which this persecution arise drove us to examine the very robust eschatology of Islam, tracing the very roots of Islam back to Genesis 16. And we watch this global religious and political system being birthed from the very loins of Abraham as Sarah's Egyptian slave Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And even as Hagar was pregnant, we saw how Sarah's jealousy drove Hagar into the desert to escape, and there being told by the angel of the Lord a prophecy concerning her son that would come. He said, you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery, and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And of course, the later birth of Isaac, patriarch of the Jewish nation unto Sarah, would lead to Hagar and Ishmael's banishment to the desert. And there they became a desert-dwelling people, a people of strife and hostility and war known as the Arabic people. Even today, the Muslims hail Ishmael as the father of the Arabic people. And in that splitting of Isaac and Ishmael, both having come from the the loins of Abraham, that that would give rise to the greatest hatred and the most murderous feud ever in all of history. And today, the Jewish people have no greater enemy than that of Islam. Every day, the news shows Ishmael still battling Isaac. Yet what began in Genesis 16 last week will come full circle in Revelation, in the time of the tribulation. With Islam making up nearly a third of the global population, that's over 2 billion today, their power and influence will certainly only grow. By their own admission, they aim to use their birth rates as their long game to eventually bring all infidel, all non-Muslim countries under the Islamic rule and law of Sharia. Of course, the very name Islam means submission. Not only that they live in submission to Allah, but that they bring the entire world under that submission by any means necessary, including the sword, through holy war, to fight and to kill those who do not believe in Allah, Quran 9.29. So tracing the roots through their prophet Muhammad, who claims direct lineage from Ishmael, we examined in detail their holy writings, the Quran and the Hadith, looking at their incredibly detailed and robust eschatology. And what emerged, as we saw last week, was something truly remarkable. Today, the newly reestablished nation of Israel is truly surrounded on all sides by Islamic enemies with those nations openly stating their goal of destroying the nation of Israel, some even codifying into their national constitutions their aim to destroy Israel. Now, this is nothing new. There has always been a special zeal of hatred for God's chosen people. 
Thus, we should not be surprised to see Islam taking a leading role in the end of days. For the greatest false religion by the numbers that shares a biblical birth story would be one of the greatest vessels for Satan's counterfeit. As the father of lies, masquerading as an angel of light, we know that for everything that is true, Satan has a lie. Satan has a parallel kingdom pound for pound. He has a knockoff. Everything that God has designed for his kingdom, Satan has made a counterfeit. And nowhere is this more overtly demonstrated than in Islamic eschatology. This is what Paul would refer to as a doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy. So we broke the Islamic eschatology up into three key people to kind of keep it bite-sized and easy to digest for us. We had that of the Mahdi, also known as the 12th Imam, the long-awaited savior of Islam. We have Jesus the prophet. And finally, the Jesus who claims to be the son of God. And as we looked at the prophesied actions of the Mahdi when he comes, we quickly realized that the biblical Antichrist is the Islamic Messiah. That he will come out of chaos, riding on a white horse. That he's going to make a peace pact with the Western powers with Israel for seven years. That's Islamic text. At every point, we saw a precise description of the biblical Antichrist. Dr. John MacArthur writing, quote, Step by step by step, the Bible's Antichrist is their Mahdi, close quote. And of course, having the biblical Antichrist be the Islamic Messiah, we watch Satan's counterfeit right down the line with the false prophet revealed in Revelation 13. In Islamic literature, they have a prophet who comes to assist the Mahdi as well, just like the false prophet will do for the Antichrist. And that prophet's name? Jesus. Recalling that Jesus is a great prophet in Islam, and he's coming back to tell the whole world that he's actually a radical Muslim, and that all the Christians have been wrong about him. He will, he will be the final witness against non-Muslims on their day of judgment, according to Islam. So on every point, we see the Islamic prophet Jesus is the exact replica in duty and function as the biblical false prophet. And finally, the third person was the one whom the Mahdi and the false prophet would battle in the final hurrah. In their counterfeit Armageddon, who would they battle? They need an Islamic antichrist to fight, don't they? Of course, in scripture, Jesus comes back to finally take out the Antichrist. In Islamic eschatology, they fight over a deceiver whose name is also Jesus, known as the Dajjal. And what makes this Jesus so dangerous to fight to the death, so deceitful, is that this Jesus, who, by the way, rides in on a donkey, according to Islamic eschatology, what makes him so evil? He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the Son of God. So the final battle, follow this, saints, in Islamic eschatology will be against a Jesus who claims to be the Son of God, the ultimate evil. Their writings read, quote, the army of Satan will be led by a person who will claim to be Jesus Christ, close quote. So we watch in amazement in Islamic eschatology as the exact parallel of biblical eschatology takes hold except exactly the opposite. 
The Jesus of Scripture, who claims to be the Son of God, is the Antichrist to Muslims. And their Antichrist, who claims to be the Son of God, is our Redeemer. An exact counterfeit, down to the last dot. So we're given further insight into the role of Islam and and the persecution of the end of days as we look as well to the manner of execution of the tribulation saints. A very specific manner of death is given in Revelation 20, verse 4. Listen. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. This is a very well-known and actually preferred method of execution in Islam. It always has been. It continues today. It's commanded by their holy writings in the Quran, the 47th chapter, reading, quote, Therefore, when you meet the unbelievers, smite at their necks. Close quote. Of course, there's a concerted effort today in Islam to detach themselves from this barbaric act, but it remains very much used and will take center stage again during the tribulation. John's gospel tells us this time, that of this time, that the time cometh when whoever kills you will think he is doing God a service, John 16, 2. Meaning this is a religiously motivated killing. Now, time did not even allow us to cover the last, last week the incredible parallels of the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, a mark given to every person on their right hand or forehead, without which you cannot buy or sell. You can't even function in society without it. But one thing we, we must cover is that the right hand and the forehead carry tremendous, tremendous significance in Islam. The forehead in Islam, you'll often see a dark patch on a devout Muslim's forehead. That's known as a zebiba, which translates to prayer bump in English. This is a combination of two things usually. Given that faithful Muslims need to pray five times a day with their forehead firmly placed into the prayer mat... This causes the devotee to, not, to develop not only a black mark from, from the dyes and the dirt in the carpet, but many also develop a prayer callus, a prayer bump, a zebiba, as a result of their devotion. So if you've got a pristine forehead, you stand out in this day. The right hand is also incredibly significant. Walid Shabod, he was writing about this phenomenon. He observes, quote, If a Muslim was caught stealing, his right hand was cut off from his arm as dictated by Islamic law. But having the right hand cut off, the Muslim was degraded. Rigid Islamic law requires one to eat and do one's daily activities as prescribed by Muhammad with the right hand. The individual would thus become a social outcast from the Islamic community. So Muhammad had a fanatical and rigid custom of doing everything with the right hand and commanded his followers to do likewise. And this strict adherence to Muhammad's injunctions and habits continues into the present. You never transact with your left hand. Everything must be with the right. Everything. If you're in a truly Islamic country, it's not unheard of to go pay for something. And if you offer the money with your left hand, they won't take it. Only the right. Hand someone an item with your left hand. They won't take it. 
Now, that's a whole other teaching on its own. There's lots more to that, but it's worthwhile to know. As there's much talk and speculation about the mark of the beast with the forehead and the right hand, it makes very good sense in the context of Islam. Of course, that does not mean that other world systems and other demonic systems will not play a part in the end of days. Of course they will. But we remember that whether it's Islam or whether it's atheistic communism or secular humanism, take your pick, the world sees no similarities between those. But the Christian knows all these come from the same tree. Satan is the father of any false system, whether religious or secular, though he greatly prefers the religious. There is so much more to be said in that realm, though it feels like a lot. Be assured, we're only scratching the very surface on what's to be seen of those truths. Well, today, beloved, our load does not get any easier. Oh, boy. As we press on through Jesus' Olivet Discourse, I'm sure, I'm sure many are encountering areas of Scripture that were intimidating or confusing. So I pray that we're bringing more light to some difficult topics Of course, Jesus' discourse on the end times of what will be the sign of his coming and his return necessitates us broadening our nets to looking at books like Revelation and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and and more. Thus, we've spent a good amount of time in those, and we'll continue that as we round the bend and head for the home stretch of Jesus' teaching here, unfolding the end of days, the coming day of the Lord. And while we have unfolded all manner of destruction and suffering that will be let loose with the removal of the church from the earth, we have up to this point only really covered the first three and a half of the total seven years. That's the more mild time of the tribulation, if you can believe it. Of course, the abomination of desolation splits that seven years, as you know, and it's out of that event that the most severe birth pains come upon the world. While the instrument of those pains are the Antichrist and his armies, spurred on by Satan and the demonic activity, the false prophets, etc., all of those are just instruments, but the wrath is the Lord's. We dare not lose sight of that, lest we forget the very purposes of this time, not only for Israel, but for the world. In our text today, pouring forth out of the abomination of desolation, we have inaugurated what Jesus calls in Matthew 24, 21, the great tribulation. The great tribulation. We have much to see, so with that, let's open with our text, beloved. Mark 13, 19 through 23. Mark 13, 19 through 23. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But as for you, see, I have told you everything in advance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for preserving this text for us. Lord, that we might be encouraged, exhorted, refreshed and renewed in the light of these truths. 
Holy Spirit, you know every need that is presented here this morning that has come, bringing the weight of their week with them. We ask, Lord, that it would be set aside, Lord, that the fertile soil of the heart would be tilled, Lord, that it might find good soil. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, some years ago, R.C. Sproul was sharing with some of his students about a preaching class that he had to take back in his seminary days. And, and this one, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, was a, a practical course where you had to actually preach. And your professor would sit right there in the front row. How would you like that? And R.C. was telling of just such a time, and this professor was sitting in the front row. And he carried a small whiteboard with him that had two words written boldly on it. So what? So what? So as R.C. would be up there preaching, all of a sudden the prof would hold up the sign up in front of him. So what? Meaning you're giving me all this information, that's great. So what? We've shared much already from the pulpit today, and we have much more to go. So let us be reminded, though, why the Olivet Discourse, why the end times matter as we walk out that door today to celebrate Memorial Day. If we are to dive into the most horrendous time in all past human history and all future human history, events that if I'm a believer, I'm not even going to be here to experience, what does this have to do with me? So what? All this is going to happen. So what? Because saints, if we don't see the personal need and the personal application, we won't hide the word in our heart as we're commanded to do. But our look into this second half, this great tribulation, has far-reaching implications for the believer. It's vast oceans of truth and revelation. Listen, beloved, Paul is encouraging the church at Philippi when he declared, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. It's the guttural cry of Paul's heart. I want to know God. I want to know Christ. And that power, that power that raised Christ from the dead, I want to see it, I want to know it, and I want to understand it. But yet we cannot know him if we do not know who he is. If we do not grasp all of his attributes in full, even the ones that aren't popular today, that you won't hear at the local megachurch. As we look to the great tribulation, if we don't know anything of God's wrath, anything of God's justice, anything of God's holiness, anything of God's anger, we can't know God. Do we want to know Him this morning? And thus, out of knowing God, for all He is, The writer of Hebrews declares, For we know vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now what knowledge of God would one require to know that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God? You must know all of his attributes. Therefore, Paul tells the church at Corinth, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Jude says to rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. 
Jesus warns in Luke 12, 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now from what place do these exhortations and truths come from? They come from knowing God and from knowing his attributes. Beloved, as we learn about horrible times like the great tribulation, we raise our hands to the heavens with the Apostle Paul and we cry, I want to know him, all of him, even if it's hard, even if it's unpopular, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that rose him from the dead. How many Christians today, professing Christians today, lack any fear of the Lord? And yet that very fear, Proverbs tells us, is just the beginning of wisdom. If anyone in our intellectual age of progressive enlightenment and postmodernity thinks yourselves wise, first gauge, first measurement, It's the fear of the Lord. If you do not possess that, even if professing to be wise, Scripture says you're a fool. So why else do we study such hard matters? Indeed, why did God choose to preserve his words on these specific matters? You know, John's gospel closes telling us that Jesus said and did so many things that all the books in the world couldn't record them but he preserved a picture of the end times for us. Because not only does it allow us to know God in his fullness, in all of his attributes, but listen, saints, it helps us grasp the times in which we live. It helps the world around us make sense. A small group of churchgoers who who love God and who serve their community, someone looks at that and says, Why does the world hate these people so much? Why is the worst vitriolic hatred reserved for some of the nicest people I've ever known? Even lost people ask this. Children and teenagers who are just beginning to grow up and beginning to notice the world around them, they ask this. Why all the hate for these people? The world loves and it applauds and it promotes those who do wicked things, but hate these other people who would give you the shirt off their back. Why? Why? How do we make sense of that young person? Listen to John 1 John 4, 3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So what does understanding the end times have to do with you today? Everything. Everything. Not only does it reveal all of God's attributes, but it begins to explain much of the world around us. And finally, it exhorts us and it spurs us on to godly living. What does Peter say? 2 Peter 3.11. We've hit this before. Since all these things are, be, are to be destroyed in this way, meaning since God is going to judge the world in righteousness, since he's literally going to melt it down and make a new one, Peter asks, what sort of people ought you to be? 
you ought to be ones of holy conduct and godliness. So, beloved, why eschatology? Why study the great tribulation? How about knowing God's attributes? How about making sense of the craziness around you and spurring you on to holy living? How's that for a start? Speaking of starting, we probably better begin. All right, looking to verse 19. Verse 19, beloved, let's dive into our text. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Well, beloved, we don't need a degree in Greek to put this together. It's pretty clear. Jesus is saying, look back in history, look forward. Nothing will compare to this time. The second half of the tribulation will be like nothing we can imagine because we have nothing in history to compare it to. Now, without fully exploring the sixth and the seventh seal in Revelation, we've covered the first five already in depth. But within those seals and bowls and trumpets are contained graphic descriptors of why Jesus describes these days in such a way. What we will notice is a great shift in the source of the judgments in the second half. The second three and a half years known as the Great Tribulation. If you'll recall, the first half of the tribulation, we saw that the judgments, while they are allowed of God, of course, most will be meted out through men and through actions of men. The pain and the suffering are brought about by unrestrained evil and the natural outflowing and outworking of sin and the degradation that comes when a biblical ethic is removed from the earth. But it was largely a man-centric source. Now with the inauguration of the second half, we see the judgments change from being man-centered, if you will, to being God-centered. Instead of God allowing and permitting unrestrained evil to take its natural course in the first half, which of course that all continues, we now see God taking an active role in the judgments. That's our first clue why the second half is so much worse. So we're going to first see the second half kick off with the greatest earthquake the world has ever known to that point. We see that in Revelation 6.12. Then I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. Great in the Greek means great. That's one of the three major earthquakes we see in this time. And indeed, one final quake that's described in Revelation 16 will quite literally change the face of the planet. We have celestial bodies, planetary bodies, stars begin to move. They begin to go dark. We'll see as the final days get closer that the very fabric of the universe will begin to tear apart at the seams. If one were to dive into the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals, you would see what are often referred to as the first, second, and third woes. Again, too much to dive into here. And we'll cover more of that as we get to the final day and hour of Christ's second coming next week. Be there for that. And the truly cataclysmic and cosmic activity that precede the Lord's return. But suffice to say, nothing will remain untouched during this period. Not the oceans, the rivers, and water supply. They'll either be tainted or they'll be turned to blood. Revelation 8 and 16, massive numbers of the population will be killed by demonic forces released upon the earth. Revelation 9, there'll be such heat that the Euphrates will dry up. 
hail and fire killing all vegetation, most livestock. Beloved, if this sounds far-fetched to any listening ear, may I submit, when we see sin to be exceedingly sinful, when we observe the blackness of men's hearts in light of Christ's perfection, God's wrath and his holy finality not only make sense, they are eminently reasonable. Hell becomes eminently reasonable when we realize that it is not the depth of the sin that requires such a place. It is the one against whom the sin was committed that requires it. Even if the sin itself was small, the sin was against a holy and perfect God. Beloved, we are given the mercy of seeing the deep and devastating consequences of sin on this side of calamity. That's a mercy. That some may listen and heed the warning. Even as we watch our world, as we watch the perversions that seem to saturate society, the rampant evil that goes unchecked, it is just a foretaste. Even now as the restraining force of the church is on the earth and the Holy Spirit restrains the evil in men's hearts, that is a merciful stay of execution for those who are hearing the clarion call, the warning of sin this morning. Look at the cost. Look at the cost. The redemption from such took no less than the shed blood of God's Son on a cross. 2,000 years ago. Nothing else on earth could satisfy the wrath of the Father towards sin. Christ is the great mediator between God and man. But what we behold in the great tribulation in the second half is the wrath of God poured out with no mediator. No mediator. For what and where is that great mediator between God and man? Jesus Christ at this point. Where is he? What's he doing? As we will see next week, Jesus now has eyes of fire. And he now has a sword coming out of his mouth. And his robes are dipped in blood. And he strikes down the nations. And he judges. And he makes war. Too late. Too late. For those who have not yet heeded the call. But oh, what a mercy to those here and now. What a mercy. What an opportunity to come in repentance and faith to the kind face of the Savior before his eyes are fire. Back to our text. Jesus gives a truly remarkable statement about these days. Looking to verse 20. Verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. There are truly great gems of theology and eschatology buried within this verse. We don't have time to cover them all, but right off, first off, who is in absolute command and control? The Lord. The Lord shortened the days. Now, does that mean that the Lord was going to do X, Y, Z, but because he saw something or he changed his mind, now he decided to do ABC instead? No. It simply means that the Lord, if had the Lord allowed these judgments, these horrendous and unrelenting persecutions to continue at this pace, the entire planet would be wiped out. 
There would be no one left. No human would survive this. That's the reality. That's what it means that the Lord shortened the days. Because God's made a promise. He's made a promise. He's promised to protect a remnant of believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. There will be those alive on the earth who will rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. In fact, Zechariah 12 says that while many believers will be martyred, we know that about a third of Israel will be saved. Saved meaning they will turn to Messiah. A third of Israel. And many of these would have been spared that death though. Why? Why were they spared? Because they would have read their now forbidden Bibles. They would have read the Olivet Discourse. They would have read, when you see the abomination of desolation, run. And run they will. And that brings such an important element to light. Notice the sea change for these precious tribulation saints. What they are called to do. Now there have been many times in scripture where the call of the day was to stand and be bold for the gospel, isn't it? The apostles in Acts, they boldly proclaimed before kings and governors and authorities. They preached before thousands on Pentecost. Paul stirred up the crowds everywhere he went, boldly proclaiming, boldly declaring the truths of the gospel so that all would hear. On down through the church age, we see people living their lives and giving their lives for the stand of their testimony to fulfill the great commission of our Lord. The primary means of God converting and convicting sinners, that of evangelism and that of the preached word, Understand now, beloved, all that has changed now in the time of the great tribulation. What is the command and call from our Lord to the remnant he will save here? Run. Run. Mark 13, 15 through 19. Run. My evangelism of the world is no longer going to be my people standing boldly for me. For lack of a better term, God takes over the great commission. I've got this now, you run. And what will that look like? Well, most of this we've taught on already. God will evangelize and will proclaim his judgment in special ways for a special time. It will be proclaimed how? From his two witnesses, who we learned about in Revelation 11. The gospel and warning will go out, not from believers now, but from angels in the midheaven. Listen to Revelation 14. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. There's your preacher right there. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And then another angel, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine and passion of, him, of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. If you ever wondered, is God in hell? Yes, God is in hell. He's everywhere. 
The only difference is hell is God without a mediator. There's no one between you and God's wrath. If anyone never told you God is not in hell, they are mistaken. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So the time, world, for having a pastor in the pulpit to share with you or that nice friend who keeps stopping by to share the gospel with you, those days are over. They've run. They've run. God's people have been commanded to run and hide. God's gonna wrap this up. The time is over. And we don't have to surmise or muse about why the Lord shortens the days. He does it why? What does our text say? For the sake of the elect, those whom he chose. God will preserve a remnant. He will keep his promise to the elect and to Israel. He's a covenant-keeping God. And yet one of the great misconceptions of the Great Tribulation is that it will be a time where religion is somehow outlawed or that secularism will reign supreme and nothing could be further from the truth. This will be a deeply religious time. Remember, beloved, Satan has done his best work not by attacking the church, but by joining the church. He much prefers to be in the pew and in the pulpit. By co-opting it and getting as close as he can to it, to twist it ever so slightly, to neuter and to defang the gospel proclamation from within. Look at the history of nearly every major denomination since the Reformation brought down within, by theological liberalism, by pragmatism, by seeker sensitivity megachurches. Our landscapes, the landscapes of Europe are now littered with beautiful church buildings all around with the gospel nowhere to be found within her walls. So let us look at the spiritual temperature of that day. Looking to verses 21 and 22, I'll read them as one. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. There are so many gems buried in this text, but let us observe just a few key elements. The first observation, is it possible to ultimately deceive and drag away someone elect of God. No. God is a keeping God. Jesus will not lose a single one the heavenly Father gives to him. It's often called the perseverance of the saints, and that's well enough. But perhaps it is better defined as the perseverance of Christ in his saints. It is because Christ ultimately persists and Christ ultimately preserves in his elect that you're going to make it to the finish line. Not because of you. Not because of you. If I could lose my salvation, I would have already. Trust me. That ultimately, even those saved during the time of the great tribulation, even they will be carried through and not be deceived. And they may be killed. And many, many will. But that is a much better thing than to be deceived. A much better thing. In this time of great deception, people will look to the heavens. They'll look to the sky. 
And deceivers will come promising answers. False Christs, false prophets. And not with empty words, but they'll be given demonic powers to dazzle and to convince. They'll perform miracles. But what does that matter? What does that matter? The great theologian Warren Wearsby, he writes, quote, Miracles are not a proof of divine calling and approval. The final test is the word of God. Close quote. These tribulation saints are going to need to be some sola scriptura people. Big time. Scripture alone. I don't care what miracle you've just performed. I don't care what my eyes see. I know what your word says, and that is all. Can we take a lesson from that, please? Deception is so strong. Jesus is saying that if you are not truly elect, you will be deceived. Only the very keeping power of God, the perseverance of Christ and his saints, will keep them. You know why, beloved? Because the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, don't they? They hear. They hear both the booming voice of his warning and correction when they stray, and they hear his tender and his kind voice when the sheep are safely in the fold. None of this need take anyone by surprise. Final verse, verse 23. But as for you, see, I have told you everything in advance. Listen, have we not pondered before who may listen to these messages in future times? Do we realize, Harrison Hills, that we preach not only to ourselves, but to those that will live through such days? That these sermons and messages are stored and literally vaulted away, protected from fire and water and earthquake. They're not stored in the cloud. They're unhackable by our friends at Sermon Audio. Thank you very much. Tribulation saints, Jesus is telling you, because I have told you, you are armed. You are equipped. Your Savior has spoken He sees the end from the beginning and he holds the future because he created it. It's his. Amidst the incredible scene of destruction that you may see from your window at this very moment, this is still our Father's world. Jesus is telling you here in verse 23, take heart. Take heart, dear saints. The worst they can do to you is take your life. This vapor That's a gift from God to begin with. So take heart. I've told you all this is going to happen. I'm Lord over that awful time. But you, dear saints, live a faithful life. Live a life pleasing to Christ. And there's nothing to fear. The promises that are given to those saints in dire circumstances are ours this morning in Christ as well. Who is it that offers such security and rescue from such perilous times? It is Christ the Lord. Who offers to all this morning forgiveness and rest if they would come in repentance and faith? What a blessed assurance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true and it is right. From age to age, you are the same, and your word is unchanging. And Lord, if that has turned to sand for some of us, Lord, if this week 
struck at the foundation and the core of the rock on which we stand, we ask that it be restored by the great potter this morning, that the rock would be reinforced and renewed, that we might stand boldly. We thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would keep each one of these dear saints until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.